Galatians 1, we'll pick it up where we left off last Sunday um, in verse 18. And then we're going to read clear through to verse 16 of chapter 2. So, a lot of reading, but I'm not going to go through each and every verse. This is so you will all take me more seriously. (laughs) Galatians 1, beginning at verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised Though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery to them, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, for God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel, sorry, to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry and the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you... Though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Let me pray real quick. Our God, we thank you for 
this time this morning that we've had to worship you to greet one another and uh, be encouraged just by being in the company of other Christians. And now as we turn our attention to reading and understanding your word, we ask for the anointing of the Holy Spirit um, as I speak and on all of us as we listen. It would be breathtakingly pointless for us to gather here and read these words and for me to talk for half an hour about these words if you, Holy Spirit, aren't in our midst making these things meaningful to us in our hearts. So please, we pray, move through this congregation so that we might be encouraged to hold fast the word of life and to let go of those things which don't make for life and peace. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. So over the last three weeks, we've seen the time, the place, the occasion for this epistle. And I have overarchingly suggested that the thrust of this letter could be summed up in these terms. On each side of the path of Christian life, so once you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you're walking in obedience by faith, there are two chasms that you can veer off into, either inadvertently because you're not paying close attention or on purpose because you think that discipline is the means of salvation. On the one side, you have the chasm of license. Taking license with the gospel is essentially doing things that you know are wrong because you believe that God will forgive you afterward. That's licentiousness. So <clears throat> the licentious person thinks it's that, that faith is not a matter at all of how they conduct themselves because Jesus died to cleanse them of whatever unrighteousness they might possess or garner through their actions. The attitude at work in the licentious is the same attitude that's at work in a very wealthy person when they commit a misdemeanor offense because they know paying for it's no problem. It's, it's like a, it, it's, there, there's nothing prohibitive to that person about the fine or the penalty that they're going to incur by committing the law-breaking. So it is with the licentious person. On the other side, left or right, which you set it up however you want, I'm not trying to insinuate anything. <clears throat> On the other side, you have the chasm of legalism. The legalist is someone who supposes that in order to be truly saved from sin, he must or she must add their own obedience to what Christ has already accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. Legalism is Jesus plus anything. Because you can't actually add anything to the work of Christ in order to fool yourself into believing that you are adding something to the work of Christ. You have to invent standards and procedures and append them to the gospel. So it's Faith in Christ plus you must get circumcised, as is the case in Galatians. Not only will I believe in Jesus, but I will also never celebrate Christmas again. Not only will I believe in Jesus, but I'll also never eat pork. 
Not only will I believe in Jesus, but I must also be debt-free and follow Dave Ramsey in all things. Not only will I believe in Jesus, but I will insist that the King James Bible is the only authorized version and that hymns are the only real way that you can worship God. Not only will I believe in Jesus, but I will dress a certain way. Because of these artificial works of religion, the attitude at work in the legalist is essentially one of self-righteousness. The way this is accomplished is as you set up these false moral standards and, you know, because you're the one that set them up, have very little trouble accomplishing obedience to them, you can then evaluate and respond to other people's behavior according to your own standards. So as long as I'm outwardly better than you, I'm secure. So the measuring line for the self-righteous pharisaical legalist is not looking in the mirror and comparing themselves to Christ. The measuring line is looking at everybody else and comparing themselves with them. So as long as I'm outwardly better than so-and-so, I'm secure. They celebrate Christmas. They eat pork. They aren't Dave Ramsey fans. They sing modern hymns. They don't wear ties to church. Or they do. This can work both ways. All of these things can work both ways. Because as surely as since getting free of uh, some self-righteous standards and I start dressing more casually to preach and teach, as sure as I wear a three-piece suit, somebody in this audience will be like, oh, (laughs) but it's still legalism. It's just going the other way. It's a very, very wide chasm that you can fall into. This way of operating does not lead the legalist, to self-evaluation. It leads them to criticize everyone around them. That's the self-righteous path to feeling good about yourself. Find everything wrong with everyone else and content yourself that you're not as bad as they are. What do you think happens when you append your own moral system to the gospel and make everybody else the standard of whether or not you're truly obedient? what happens is you replace a relationship with Jesus with all kinds of man-made religious nonsense that's nowhere in scripture, but it's not a problem because you're morally superior according to your own standard. So Paul writes this letter and he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. What you forsake, either on the, 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 the side of license or on the side of legalism, what you forsake is your own authentic, genuine, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and you trade it for something meaningless and worthless. So last week, we looked at one of the defining characteristics of somebody who is in relationship with Jesus Christ. What it is, is they actually believe the gospel. Look over here. Don't look over there. The, uh, I knew this would happen eventually. <clears throat> um, we got to get a door up there. Help me remember. Yeah, nice squeaky. <laughs> click. Um, <clears throat> to say the difference is they actually believe the gospel is not terribly descriptive. So the way that Paul puts it is he talks about his former manner of life in Judaism. So what I said last week was the way you can know you believe the gospel is by answering this question. Do I have a former life? 
or do I only have this one? And I'm not talking about I used to smoke crack, but now I don't. I'm not talking about I used to sleep around, but now I'm married. And I'm not talking about I used to wear ties to church, but I don't anymore. That's not necessarily a former life. Things like that might be features of a former life, but we're talking about something else. And this is why a former life is actually kind of a bittersweet thing. You're glad that you have a former life, but at the same time, you wish you didn't. Because memories of how you used to live will make you melancholy, a little embarrassed, and mark you with a certain amount of regret. Amen? Amen. Thankfully, you've changed. You used to walk in the darkness of perpetual loneliness and isolation or people-pleasing. And in spite of however many companions you had, you never really felt like you had fellowship. When you come into relationship with Jesus Christ, you gain a companion who sticks closer than a brother. A real relationship with somebody who is not constantly judging you. You used to be fearful of God because you knew that his, that his judgments were just and you had a pretty good idea that you weren't going to pass muster. But now you draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness. This is a former life. You used to find comfort in comparing yourself with those other stupid, lazy, selfish people. But now you find comfort in knowing that in spite of your stupidity, your laziness, your selfishness, and your hypocrisy, Jesus loves you. So today we, we read this extensive personal history from Paul, which is the longest narrative text in any of the epistles. And Paul is doing a couple of things through this narrative. First, he's authenticating his apostleship to his writers. He's making sure they understand, I'm not less than an apostle just because I wasn't there when Jesus fed the 5,000. I'm not less of an apostle just because I wasn't there when he walked on water. So those aren't necessarily the features of whether or not you're an apostle. Second thing he's doing is he's demonstrating how pervasive the danger of legalism is. So let's get to work. The last six verses of chapter one describe how Paul came to know Peter. And as a result, uh, his, his, Paul's conversion became known to the churches in Judea, in Israel. We're just going to pick it up in chapter two. And if you think I'm phoning in the last half of chapter one, you're welcome to preach next week. Uh, but you have to keep it to Galatians 1, 18 through 24. Good luck. Then after 14 years, this is chapter 2, was that passive-aggressive? Yeah. I shouldn't be passive-aggressive from the pulpit. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> so now I definitely need some affirmation from an elder. Can I get, do we have an elder? That just, am I forgiven for the, where are our elders? Lee, thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> Um, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation to set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So Paul's describing how he went about making sure that the gospel he had received by direct revelation from Jesus Christ, which is a curious way to receive the gospel. And I said last week, that's not prescriptive, that's descriptive. We should not expect or anticipate that we're going to get direct revelation from Jesus Christ through an audible voice or a vision or anything like that. And I'll add this week, if you do, you must bring your vision or whatever God told you audibly into submission with what's already here. 
And if it doesn't line up, then you maybe you might need counseling or psychotherapy. So he's saying I'm not going to say that. Uh, <clears throat> I may not have slept enough last night. Bear with me. He's saying he got this direct revelation from Christ. He brings it into submission to what the other apostles are teaching, and nothing happens. Nothing has to get corrected. So he goes before Peter and those who were influential. He says, here's the gospel that I'm preaching. Here's what I preached to the Galatians, for instance. What do you think we need to change about this? And they said, nothing. What you've proclaimed to those people is completely consistent with what Jesus himself taught. No adjustments need to get made. The substance of his gospel message was approved by the other apostles. Now, I don't think Paul expected anything different, but it gives us some assurance, especially in the day and age where we live in the light of this whole new perspective on Paul. It's not really that new anymore. It's like 100 years old that says that Paul comes out of left field and takes over the church and ruins the gospel. There's a lot of people that believe that. It's nice to know that Paul can say, no, 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 I submitted my gospel to the other apostles and they agreed with it. So check, that's done. Doesn't get corrected. Verses 3 through 10 said, even Titus, well, I'm just going to read 3 through 5 for the sake of time. Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So now we cut to the chase. Titus, obviously Greek name, not a Jew, a Gentile, was not compelled to be circumcised, nor was he compelled, we can assume, to obey any of the other ceremonial laws. He was along for the trip. They had their chance to point at him and say, unclean, and they didn't do it. Nobody said that. This was the opportunity for the church in Jerusalem and all those there who were Jews to make a demand of a Gentile convert and say, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to do this and this and this and this. And, and none of that happened. None of that got said. So two things are evident. One, Paul's gospel was not corrected. That means the gospel he preached to the Galatians was biblical. Two, none of the apostles or those who were influential in the churches in Judea said anything about circumcision. Titus was accepted as is. And if you've already tuned me out because you're like, why does any of this matter? When did this turn into a history class? Please tune back in and pay attention because this has dramatic application to us. <clears throat> who were these false brothers? I mean, the short answer is we don't know because he doesn't give them a name and he doesn't say, and then Joe Blow said this and then Henry said that. We just know that they were false. And we know that whatever disagreement arose as a result of those false brothers, no one of consequence disagreed with Paul. So maybe, there, maybe he's saying there were people there who tried to add things to the gospel, but it wasn't anybody who had apostolic authority. What were they trying to make everyone do? Well, they were trying to make everyone keep the ceremonial law 
explanation is in order. And I'll be honest with you. The only test that I administered to determine whether or not I was going to go through this this morning was I asked my son, who has been through this at least three times, what are the three types of law? And he was like, don't know. And that's fine. You don't have to know because I'm going to teach you right now what the three types of law are. Because if I just say they were trying to get Titus or whoever to obey the ceremonial law, that means nothing to you if you don't know what the ceremonial law is, right? All right, so here we go. There are generally accepted to be in the first five books of your Bible, the books of Moses or the Pentateuch, there are generally accepted to be 613 laws. So if you go through and count them, it's not 613 verses, but it's six, give or take, 613 different laws on how the people of God were supposed to conduct themselves after coming out of Egypt. The laws can be separated into three categories. If you're taking notes, ready? I'll just give them all three to you and then I'll talk about them. First, you have the moral law. Second, you have the, how long does it take to write moral? Second, you have the judicial law. Third, you have the ceremonial law. So those are the three categories that I'm saying you can break those 613 commandments up into. Some of them would go under moral, some of them would go under judicial, some of them would go under ceremonial. The moral law is best summed up in the Ten Commandments. Moral law. First five, love God. Second five, love your neighbor. So don't worship your kids, worship God. Don't Take the Lord's name in vain. Love God, right? Second, don't lie, cheat, steal, murder, bear false witness. Love people. And Jesus sums them up that way. The great commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself, which he then later through John adapts into, love your neighbor as I have loved you, right? That's the moral law. Second, You've got the judicial law. Uh, this is my favorite of the three. Uh, just the way my mind works. The judicial law deals with societal standards. So if your cow tramples somebody else's employee, this is how you deal with it. God lays it all out. If you, you run into a slavery situation, here's how you deal with it. Here's how you deal with adultery. Here's how you deal with somebody stealing from you. There are clear instructions given for the administration of justice in the event that the moral law is transgressed or in the event you suffer some loss through nature, through providential means, right? That's judicial law. Third, you have the ceremonial law, which prescribed worship and set the people of God apart from the pagan nations that surrounded them. So get out a piece of paper. We're going to take a test. I'm just joking. We're not going to do that. Ceremonial law said, dress this way, eat only these foods, circumcise your sons on the eighth day. If you sin this way, kill that animal. If you sin that way, kill this animal. That's the ceremonial law. What we will see as we progress through the book of Galatians is that that part of the law has been completely put away by the work of Christ. I can't say everything in one sermon, so you have to come back if you want to get a better understanding for what I'm talking about. The ceremonial law has been put away by the work of Jesus Christ. Period. It's done. 
Even Titus, who was with me, this is 2, 3, Galatians 2, 3. Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission for even a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Think with me what that means. There were these people who came in and tried to force us to do ceremonial law things. We didn't yield to them for a moment so that the gospel might be preserved. That means when you append things to the gospel, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, moral requirements that aren't actually real, what you're doing is spending the gospel credibility for the sake of your own standards. The gospel is at stake. So I said, these false brothers were trying to make everyone keep the ceremonial law. Remember, because you probably already forgot, the ceremonial law prescribed worship and set the people of God apart from the pagan neighbors that they had in the Old Testament. Right? We good? They were trying to reinstitute that. When Jesus meets the woman at the well in John 4, which is by far my favorite passage of Scripture in all the Gospels, she gets into this conversation with him because he, he says, she rolls up in the heat of the afternoon and, she, and he says to her, hey, would you draw some water because I'm thirsty? And, and she's like, why are you talking to me? And she, she says, I'm a Samaritan and Jews don't have dealings with Samaritans. What she means is I'm not a high quality human being which is why I'm here in the heat of day drawing water instead of coming in the cool of the morning when all the other women do. The reason I don't come with them is because they hate me. The reason they hate me is because I'm hot and all of their husbands are lusting after me and I've had five husbands. Like, that's what's in her mind. Why are you talking to me? People don't do that. And Jesus said, if you knew who I was and who it is that's speaking to you, you would have asked me for water and I would have given you living water and you never would have thirsted again. And now, so because things start to get a bit intense, she distracts him or tries to with a theological debate. Hey, 150 years ago, our forefathers built uh, the temple on this mountain and they say that this is where you're supposed to worship God. But the Jews say, no, 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 it's over there is where the temple's supposed to go and that's where you're supposed to worship God. And Jesus says, an hour is coming and now is when neither on that mountain nor on this one will people worship God because God desires worshipers in spirit and in truth which is Jesus saying doesn't matter anymore where the temple is because all of that is getting put away in favor of relationship with me you tracking all right let's keep going Christians are not under any obligation to keep those laws. So look at verse 11. Galatians 2.11, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, if you would like to be a fly on the wall in, in the New Testament, early New Testament church, <clears throat> after seeing everything that Jesus did, I think second on my list of things I would be curious to see would be the moment that Paul confronted Peter to his face just to see like what that looked like. I don't know, I don't do disagreements with Christian brothers very well. I'm learning, but I don't do it well because I'm either like I'm over the top aggressive 
or I just like, I, let's just not talk about it. Those are my two settings. I'm either in a, in a, like, not a physical, but a rage emotionally dealing with our disagreement, or I will, I'll avoid you. Let's just not. So Paul confronts Peter to his face and does it in such a way that he doesn't mind writing about it later. Let me share this with everybody. Peter won't mind. <laughs> I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, or Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? What he's saying is, if you, who are a Jew, are eating pork and shellfish and staying up late on Friday night, why are you now demanding that these Gentile believers start adopting all of these ceremonial law customs? Their conduct meaning Peter's and Barnabas's and others who were leaders in the church in Jerusalem, was not, listen, it was not in step with the gospel. That's what Paul says. Your conduct is not in step with the gospel. He had gone from eating with them, Peter, fellowshipping with them, sharing life with them, to when these people rolled in from Jerusalem. I don't think James sent them. I think they just came and said, hey, we're from James, and here's the new rules. When these guys showed up, Peter's like, uh, I know we were eating together last Thursday, but this Thursday, I can't do that anymore. Sorry. And by the way, you should get circumcised. Like out of nowhere. Because of the pressure that came from these religious hypocrites who came from Jerusalem. He's doing it because these legalistic Jewish Christians were peer pressuring him into doing it, basically. Now, can we just talk honestly with each other for a second? If Peter can fall under peer pressure to uh, adopt religious ceremonies that are meaningless and force other people to do it too, are we like... Is that not going to happen here? Are we not at some risk of that occurring? How stupid would we have to be to be like, yeah, Peter had that problem, but I won't. I'll be fine. If you weren't circumcised, or you ate pork, or you didn't dress a certain way, you didn't tithe from your spice rack, you were a second-rate Christian, if a Christian at all. And the hypocrisy here is that Peter knew better. Yet something in his heart allowed him to be so pressured by these religious elites that he caved in. We, we, we don't think that won't happen to us, do we? we, we, we we've got to know that my heart, as prone to wander as it is, is certainly available to wandering into legalism. Yeah. So Paul confronts Peter publicly. I won't do that to you because... Unless you were a pastor 
and doing this, then I, I might have to confront you publicly, but I won't confront you publicly if I see you steering or veering into the ditch of legalism. We'll, I'll talk with you privately, so don't be afraid of that. But he confronts him publicly because Paul understood that when we veer off the path of relationship with Jesus Christ into legalism, we are in catastrophic danger. You can't overstate this. And what we'll see as we work our way through Galatians is you can either keep the law, you can do that, keep the, or be saved through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Those are your options. Keep the law, all of it, all 613 commandments, perfectly, which you better open a dove farm and a goat farm and a lamb farm because you're going to be killing animals weekly. <laughs> or you can believe in Jesus Christ. Those are your choices. So is it everybody has to follow Dave Ramsey or faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, glory of God alone? I'll take this one. I like this one better. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not picking on you if you're into Dave Ramsey. Okay, Tim, it's fine. What I am suggesting, however, is that using Galatians is that we don't necessarily substitute circumcision or animal sacrifice or abstaining from shrimp and pork for the gospel. What we do is we substitute made-up ceremonies for real relationship with Jesus. Listen, and I'm going to do the thing where this sermon's going to be over, okay, before you expect it to be ceremonies that we substitute for real relationship with God in Jesus Christ. Ready? I read my Bible today. So God has to give me a good day. I did my bedtime ritual. So God has to help me sleep well tonight. Ceremonies that we substitute for real relationship with God and Jesus Christ. I gave my 10% at church, so God has to bless me financially. Or I gave more. Ooh. Now he has to do stuff for me. I didn't sin when I had the chance, so God has to answer my prayers now. You all are real good at maintaining eye contact when you shouldn't be. You should be looking down in shame. I dress a certain way, I speak a certain way, or I work hard, or I sacrifice my time, or whatever, and I expect God to do something for me as a result. And then, look right at me. Your life is marked by anxiousness or anger because what you are trying to do by raising up these little moral totems is control everything. And brothers and sisters, we weren't built for that. We're not made to control everything, and we are definitely not made to control God. And that's what legalism seeks to do. Let it go. Just let it go. Let go of this pervasive need to manage all the details of your life and your kid's life and your grandkid's life and the lives of people around you by holding them to some standard that you've come up with. That tendency will kill you, literally and spiritually. Next week, hopefully, we'll get into what the law actually does 
and seek to cultivate a, a relationship with Jesus through a better understanding of what the law actually does. Because I didn't say he did away with the whole thing. I said he did away with the ceremonial law, right? So we've got to talk about what the law is and what it does. But this week I have a challenge for you. And for many of you, this will be something you already do. But for the rest, here's what I suggest. Um, pray when you pray like you're talking to a friend. Like scoop out all of the accoutrements that you put on your prayers. I saw a very funny video on the internet a couple of weeks ago. I'm not going to reenact it. I'm just going to say this. It was a young woman, and the caption of the video was, if we talk to our friends the way we talk to God. And I will reenact it for you because it was that funny. Uh, if I came up to you after service today and said, listen, Jude, I just want you to know, Jude, that I really appreciate you being here, Jude. And I just... So glad you're here, Jude. And Jude, would you do me a favor and take out the trash, Jude? And who talks like that? But we pray like that, right? So take out all of those accoutrements and just talk to Jesus like you're talking to a friend. Because that's what he is. If you're in Christ, he is your friend. Ask for forgiveness where you know you've sinned. Don't sit and imagine what might happen if you forget to mention one. The Holy Spirit will bring to mind things that you need to confess. Confess them and be done with it. Rigorous remembrance of all of your failings does not incline God's heart to you any more than genuine, authentic desire to fellowship with him does. So if something comes to mind that you need to confess, confess it. Worship. Ask for help where you need it. Don't, as you're praying, go, ah, I could really use God's help with that, but I haven't exactly been batting a thousand this week, so I'm not going to ask for it. That's legalism. Ask for help where you need it, but do it understand, understanding that you're, you're talking to someone who loves you. Oh, I'm not so sure, Pastor. I don't know if he loves me. Brother, he died on a cross to save you. Like, what else could he do to convince you that he loves you? So talk to him like he loves you. Pray like he loves you. Ask him for things like he loves you. And then if after a week of doing that, your relationship with him doesn't feel a little bit stronger and a little bit more authentic, please write me an email or shoot me a text or call me and let's go have coffee. Because I think that's the key to releasing this control we think we have in our lives to the one who made the stars. Let him be in control. Let him be in control. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.